you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is considered one of Jesus' greatest teachings, um, and it's going to be our next sermon series that we're going to do here after we finish with Joseph, uh, Jesus related some truths that uh, are very important for each one of us to live out and to act out in our lives. And one of the truths that we pass by real quickly that is so powerful uh, that relates to not only what I read earlier, but what I'm going to read in just a moment is found in Matthew 5, 23. And I want you just to listen to what Jesus commands. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there at the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And once you listen to what the Message Bible interprets it. It says, if you enter into the place of worship and you're about to worship or make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, now he doesn't say a, a grudge you have against a friend, a grudge that a friend has against you, abandon your offering, abandon your worship and leave immediately and go to that friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Now I think this passage uh, makes it pretty clear that Jesus took the idea of reconciliation pretty importantly. That Jesus understood that restoration of relationships is key to almost everything that we do. And why shouldn't He take it seriously? It was what His whole ministry was about. It was what His main job and purpose on coming to this earth was for. It was to allow you and I to be reconciled, to be restored in a right relationship with God. You see, each one of us, because of sin, has become separated from God. We can't have a relationship with God. We, we can't talk with Him. We can't walk with Him. We can't uh, draw on His strength and His mercy and His grace until Jesus died on the cross to provide a bridge to reconciliation. You see, what Jesus did was allow us, through His righteousness, to now be in a right relationship to God. And so He takes the idea of reconciliation very importantly and very seriously. You see, for most of us, it's enough just to forgive someone, right? I mean, we have to go through a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of hand-wringing to forgive somebody. But Jesus says, we don't stop at forgiveness. See, what Jesus calls us to, if we are really going to be Christ followers, if we are really going to be His disciples, He calls us to go beyond forgiving somebody. He calls us to re reconcile with someone, to be restored. And that's what the definition of reconciliation is. It's defined as the restoration of a relationship. It literally, if you take the word apart, it means bringing two things back together. It's a picture of harmony. It's a picture of balance. It's a picture of taking two things and finding a way to reconcile them. When you reconcile your bank account, if you still do that, those of you that get a bank statement, uh, you take that bank statement that says, this is how much the bank says you have, and you look at your checkbook and you see, this is how much I say I have. And if the two numbers aren't correct, you have got to somehow reconcile them. And you see what God is calling us, what Jesus is calling us as followers of Christ, is to be in the reconciliation business. You see, that was His job, and now we have inherited the Dad's business. And you and I are called to reconciliation. You see, you may think your job is a businessman, or a teacher, or a housewife. You may think your job title defines what you do, but you see, you have a different business. You are in the reconciliation business. You are called to be about modeling and exampling what it means to see relationships come back together and be restored. 
Now, this is a hard concept. I'm not going to pretend that, that it's something that we can just talk about this morning and everything's going to be okay and it's easy for us to walk out of here and do because if forgiveness is difficult and reconciliation is almost impossible without the help of God. You see, sadly, as I was sharing with you from John, most of us in the church have forgotten that we are called to be missionaries. That we each have a ministry. That we each have a purpose. You see, your purpose is not to come to church as a Christian. Your purpose is, is not to sit around and, and, and polish your, your wings or your harp and get ready to sing in the eternal choir. That's not what you were called to do. Jesus brought you out of darkness so that you could be light in a dark world. And because of that, every person that ever calls the name Jesus Christ has been given a new responsibility. You see, your job may be in the secular field. You may work in a secular culture and environment. But your business, your responsibility is anything but secular. Sadly, um, what's happened over the last 25 or 30 years in the church is we've allowed there to become a division between professional clergy and everybody else. And when we allowed that to happen, what we did was we started saying, not necessarily out loud, that, that it is their job to do ministry, right? It's the minister's job. It's the reverend's job. It, it's the clergy's job. They do the spiritual stuff. It's what they're trained for, right? It's what they're paid for. But you see, the Bible never differentiates between the two. The Bible never says only the spiritual things are for the spiritual people and the professional people and everything else. That falls to your responsibility. No, the Bible is very clear that every person has a job. Every person has a call in their life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that call is in the business of reconciliation. And before we can share the business of reconciliation and what Christ wants to reconcile, you and I have to be reconciled. I mean, think about Joseph. Think about Joseph's life. We've been studying it now for 10 weeks. Surely you know a little bit about Joseph to know that along each path that he had, each stop in his journey, he was in a secular world with a secular job, but he recognized he had a bigger responsibility. When Joseph is a slave and he's put in Potiphar's house, his job was to serve Potiphar, but his business was to be serving God. And the Bible says he served God so much so that Potiphar saw and recognized and called attention to his service. When he was in prison for 10 years, his job was to sit in a dark cell and wait out his time, even though he didn't do anything wrong. But what his business became was ministering and helping others. He, he ministered to the new prisoners that came in, the scared people as they came in. He reached out to the needs of others, so much so that the warden said... That man walks with God and he is blessed by God and everything that he touches glorifies God. That's a secular warden. And when he moved into Pharaoh's palace and interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he was given a job as second in command, but he had a different business. What was the first thing he said to Pharaoh? Pharaoh gave him his dream and Joseph said what? I can't interpret it, but I know a God who can. And it left such an impression on Pharaoh. Do you know what they named him in Egyptian? God still speaks. You see, Joseph had a job, but he recognized that he had a bigger calling as a part of that job. And everywhere he went, no matter what his responsibilities, no matter what his title, no matter what he was looking out to do, he was still called to the business of the Lord. 
And I want to suggest to you, if we're ever going to turn things around in this nation, if we're ever going to restore truth to the culture that we're surrounded by, it's not going to come from the pulpit. It's going to come from the pews. It's not going to come from better sermons or or louder sermons. It's going to come when Christians begin to realize that the mission field that they are surrounding themselves in every day is ripe for harvest. And that you have a mission field. And that you have a calling. Now I'm going to get back to Joseph, but let me just say this. Somehow, we have become convinced that if we just believe the right things, then the world around us will be changed. And and understand, I I believe it's important for us to believe the right things. I understand doctrine and and, uh, theology is very important. But believing the right things is not going to change the world. Doing Those things is what changes the world. And it's not until we take what we believe and begin to live it and begin to act on it and begin to model it in the mission field that we are called to, which may be your job, it may be your neighborhood, it may be your home. But until we begin to model those things, we will not see any change in our culture. You see, change comes when we live because of what we believe. And I believe all throughout our culture we have seen that happen. Institutions transformed, communities transformed, families transformed. Not because churches preached harder or believed more, but because the Christians in the body of Christ walked out of the doors recognizing they were entering into a mission field. Let me tell you something. Your mission field is just as important as any of the foreign missionaries that we pray for on our list. People say, well, mine's not that big of a mission field. Do you understand that there are more countries sending missionaries to the United States than we are sending outside of the United States? Open your eyes, church, all around us. And before you start protesting and saying, but pastor, you don't understand, my job is just a little cubicle in an office far out of the way, or or I'm just a housewife, or I'm just a grandmother, and, and I stay home and clean the house, and I don't have any influence, pastor. I may not have a big mission. I I don't do a whole lot. Do you think Joseph had a lot of influence when he was in Potiphar's house? He was a slave. Who did he expect to impact? Do you think Joseph had a lot of influence when he was sitting in the bottom of that prison, in that cell? Do you think he looked around and looked and said, man, I'm winning people and influencing people here? No. But what he did was he was faithful where he was. And as a slave, he was faithful to the ministry of God. As a prisoner, he was faithful to the ministry of God. And because of that faithfulness, God increased his influence to the point that he was second in command of the greatest nation in the world. And I believe if he would have given up in prison, if he would have given up as a slave, he never would have made it to the palace. And his family would have never been saved. Don't tell me your influence is too small. Don't tell me that you can't make a difference. When the church starts allowing our business and our calling to intersect our jobs, to intersect our neighborhoods, to intersect our friendships, we will begin to see change. Dallas Willard, the author, says, We have reduced the gospel, the good news, and made it all about us. We've turned the gospel into a gospel of sin management. A gospel where all we worry about is how we are going to be better people. He says, God didn't bring us out of darkness just so we could sit around. God brought us out of darkness so that we could be salt and light in the world. And you see, because you and I have been reconciled with God, we are now in the reconciliation business. And everything we do needs to model that. 
Every place we go needs to model that. I find that Christians, in in most of our life, we will work hard on trying to be more grace-oriented. We will work hard on trying to be more merciful. We'll even work hard on trying to be forgiving, trying to forgive others. But reconciliation is not something we like to tackle. Something we like to put on a shelf, restoring relationships in our own lives. Why? Because it's hard. Because it always involves sacrifice. You see, man could not be reconciled with God without a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that took its place in the means of a lamb. Jesus came and became the ultimate sacrifice and gave up his own life. Why? So that we might be reconciled. And for you and I to be reconciled with relationships that we have that have become torn, it requires a sacrifice. And most of us are not willing to give it. See, it requires death. Death to self. Death to pride. Death to the idea that we were the one who was right and they were the one who was wrong. Death to past hurts. See, what I find whenever I talk about reconciliation, if you ever want to get a church to be more forgiving, then talk about reconciliation. Because we will be forgiving. Because when God begins to tell us, listen, you need to make that relationship that has become broken in your life with a co-worker, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, whatever it is. I don't know what God's telling you, what relationship that you've got that is not reconciled. But whenever you begin to tell Christians that they need to work on restoring that relationship, that we go back a step and go, okay, I'll forgive anybody. Because that's easy when we look at reconciliation. I don't know what relationship God wants you to reconcile. But I promise you, if you'll take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, He'll tell you if you don't know already. You say, why is it important, Pastor? It's important because you are called to model Jesus Christ to the world around you. And you do not understand the power of reconciliation and what it can do for your family, what it can do for your your workplace, what it can do for your community. When you begin to reach out and die to self and offer yourself as a sacrifice so that relationships can be brought back together, people see Jesus because that's what he did. Now, I'll just tell you this about it. When God puts it on your heart, it will be the hardest thing that you do. It's not easy. And it's even harder if it's somebody in your own family. It's even harder if it's somebody close to you. You know why? You know why it's hard to reconcile with family? Because we are harder on those that are closest to us than those that are out in the world, aren't we? Listen, we'll forgive somebody at work. We'll forgive somebody in our community. We'll even forgive somebody out there for the same things that we don't forgive our family members for. We'll offer grace, we'll offer love, we'll let things go, but when it comes to a family member, we we have a tendency to, to, to dig in. God is calling us to be about reconciliation. It's hard, it's difficult. And let me just say this, if God's going to call you to restore a relationship, you're only responsible for your part. You can't make somebody restore. I've had people that have heard me talk about this and heard me preach and say, Pastor, I did everything I could, and they just walked away. That's all you're called to do. Because you can't make somebody do something they're not. But listen to me. You do not understand. You see, some of us, we rationalize and we reason out. They're not going to respond anyway. I've tried in the past, and so I'm, I'm not going to try again. You do not understand the power that God releases in your life and in that person's life when you humble yourself and you begin to try to restore a relationship. They may not all of a sudden receive what you're reaching out to them, but God, I promise you, will begin to do a work in them or he wouldn't have put them on your heart. 
The reason he's putting it on your heart that you need to restore that relationship is because it's important to him and it's important for your future. Restoration is not easy. You don't believe me? Let me give you an example. Turn to Genesis 42. That was my introduction. Amen? Some of you are going, what? Just kidding. I want to tie it all back together to Joseph. That was, that was all pulling us back together to Joseph and what it means for reconciliation. If that was just the, the intro, that was some good stuff. Where do we end? Last week, Egypt's in a famine, just like Pharaoh had dreamed. Egypt is struggling. Not just Egypt, the whole world is struggling, just like Pharaoh's dream. But Joseph had a plan. Seven years of good, they stored up so that they would have grain and stuff ready when the seven years of bad came. The seven years of bad are coming, and everyone from around the world is coming to Egypt to get their grain, to get their food, to get restored. And in that crowd coming is a family from Canaan. A family that's familiar to us. A family whose father is named Jacob or Israel. And he is hungry and they send their ten boys to go get some food from Egypt. And whose job was it to give the food out? Whose job was it? Joseph. Joseph's job was giving the food. And here come his brothers ready to get the food. What was Joseph's job? Selling the food. But what was Joseph's business reconciliation you don't believe me read what happens i'm gonna start back in verse six where they bow down now joseph was governor of the land the one who sold the grain that's his job so when joseph's brothers arrived they bowed down to him with their faces on the ground remember last week that's his dream come true that was the dream that he got him thrown in in the well in the first place that they would bow down to him and here they are literally bowing down to him as soon as joseph saw his brothers he recognized them But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke to them harshly. Where do you come from, he asked. We come from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. He looks like an Egyptian, speaking through an interpreter. It's been 20 years. They don't recognize their baby brother that they left in the well. He's changed, but he instantly recognizes them when they show up. says, he remembered the dream at that moment, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see what our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are the sons of one man. Your servants are honest, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now, let me just go back. Do you remember what they were accusing Joseph of when he showed up in Hebron? You're come to spy on us, aren't you? You come, Dad sent you to come spy on us. That's what got him so angry. Here is Joseph replaying the very words that his brothers said to him. No, we're not a spy. We're hungry. We're 12 brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and we have one who is no more. And Joseph said to him, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, who is that? That's Benjamin. See, Jacob didn't send Benjamin, his, his youngest son, with his other brothers because the last time he sent a son with those brothers, the guy didn't come back. So he keeps Benjamin at home. Benjamin is Joseph's only real blood brother from the same mother. He says, I've got a brother at home. He says, here's what I want you to do. Unless your brother comes here, you will not be free. Send one of your numbers to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Let them stew. Let them wrestle with what was going on. 
On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go back and take grain for your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words will be verified, and that you may not die. And they proceeded to do this. And they said to one another, Now this is happening in front of Joseph. He's sitting there giving out the grain. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. For we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen, and this is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the oldest, said, Didn't I tell you not to sin against that boy? You wouldn't listen. Now we have to give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. Now, we've been following Joseph's life the last 20 years. Can you imagine what the brothers have been going through for 20 years? Can you imagine the amount of guilt that they had been struggling with for 20 years? So much so that the moment something bad happens, the first thing they turn to is this is why. Because of what we did to Joseph 20 years ago, this is why. Because the guilt was eating them up. That's what let Joseph realize that there was a chance for more than just feeding them. That there was a chance for reconciliation. And Joseph began to weep. And because Joseph wept, he began to recognize there was a path for something bigger. See, Joseph could have just fed them and sent them on their way. That was what his job required, right? But he recognized that God was wanting to do something bigger. Because you see, God's dream for Joseph was not just to save his family from famine. It was to save them spiritually. He recognized that if they were going to be God's people and he was going to be their God, they had to step up. You see, the beautiful thing here is Joseph is the one that was wronged. Joseph did nothing to deserve what happened to him. But yet he was the one who opened the door for restoration. And the moment he heard his brother's brokenness and repentance, he recognized that there was an opportunity for restoration. You see, he saw Potiphar's house as a mission field. He saw the prison as a mission field. He saw Pharaoh's palace as a mission field. And now he recognized that the forgotten mission field that was most important was his own home. Because you see, you and I, we sometimes are quick to understand that there is a mission field out there and forget the mission field that we're around on a daily basis. See, what I want you to hear, what Joseph is wanting us to hear, especially when it comes to reconciliation, is that one of the greatest opportunities for ministry and missions happens in your home. One of the greatest chances for reconciliation happens with your family members. See, I'm always amazed when I talk to Christians that have family members that don't know Christ. Good people, and they'll come and they'll say, we need to pray, can you pray with me? And and this is a burden on my heart. And these are good people that have been through evangelism training. Some have have been door-to-door evangelism. Some have been trained in EE and faith and other programs. And some have, have gone out and done ministry for the church at night where you just go to visit visitors. Some have even gone on mission trips where they've gone and and shared the gospel in unknown regions and lands, but yet they have never said a word to their family members about Jesus Christ. Never spoken about it. Many times they have opportunities. Many times they have chances, but they've remained silent. You see what I want you to hear me, church, is if we're going to recognize the mission field out there, then we better open our eyes to the lost mission field in our midst. Because the greatest Christian influence you have is to your family. 
And parents and grandparents, the greatest Christian heritage you will leave behind is not how much you gave to the church. It's not a a, a stained glass with your name on it. It's not something you've done. The greatest Christian heritage that you will leave behind is your children and grandchildren. And that's why it's so important that we model reconciliation at home. That's why I tell parents all the time, do everything you can to expose your kids from the youngest age to Jesus Christ. If you're going to read them a bedtime story, Grandma, read them a story about Jesus. If you're going to teach them a song, teach them a song about Jesus. Teach them to pray. It always amazes me when parents, I was a youth minister for 20 years before I became pastor here. And in that 20 years, it always amazed me when I would talk with parents. I'd say, well, I, you know, I, I want my kids to come to church, but I'm just not going to force them to go. You force them to go to school, don't you? You don't let them wake up and go, do you want to go today? Are you tired? Did you have a long night? It's kind of raining outside. Maybe you want to stay in bed. No, we don't. Get up and go to school. Is education more important than eternity? You see, the same excuses we buy for letting them skip church, we would never buy for anything else. It's raining, I'm tired, had a long day, I don't know anybody, I don't like the teacher. You don't let them skip their sports because they don't like the coach. We don't let rain stop us from going to the movie or stop us from going out to eat or stop us from even going to the ball fields. Yet it looks like bad weather, we say, oh, it's going to rain. Listen. Your kids see what you do much more than they hear you. And they are watching your example. I went back and looked. I preached a message about parents and reconciliation back 23 years ago where I talked about the dangers of what was going to happen in the future if we didn't instill in our kids the values of what it means to be a Christian and the community of Christ. Listen, I'm, I'm not a legalist about church. You can, if you're going to be with your family doing something, you go do it. God's not check and roll. But our kids need to understand and our grandkids need to understand that this place gathered together is important. And don't just tell them it's important. Tell them why it's important. Because it's where the body of Christ gathers each week to celebrate and to mourn and to sing together and to worship Jesus Christ. And without it, I can't get through my week. And we need to example that to our kids. 20 years ago, they would tell us as as pastors that we understand kids are going to grow up and they're going to they're going to go off in college and stop coming to church. But once they get married and have kids, they come back to church. And that was true for a while, but that's not true anymore. You know why? Because they never went to church in the first place. They went Christmas and Easter and once a month whenever their parents didn't have something better for them to do. You see, we need to understand what's going to change our culture is us exampling Jesus Christ in everything that we do. You can't decide for them. You can't make them Christians, but you can do everything in your power to make sure they're exposed every time they can be to Jesus Christ. See, Joseph recognized that feeding his family wasn't enough. He recognized that forgiving them wasn't enough. They needed reconciliation. And some of you, reconciliation starts at home with a family member, a mother, a father, a grandparent, a cousin, a brother, a sister, a child. And it's hard and it's difficult and I'm not telling you to do it just because that's what's good or what's right. I'm telling you to do it because it makes a difference on your eternity and their eternity. Because when we begin to example Jesus' behavior, people take notice. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. 
Some of you are understanding that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart a relationship that needs restoring. That's the first step. That's all I'm asking from you this morning is to open your eyes. Open your eyes that there's a mission field. Open your eyes that the people around you are watching you. Open your eyes that people need to be restored. Your heart needs to be restored with somebody. Because you see, once you admit it, and once you recognize it, then the next step is doing something about it. Stepping out. Doesn't mean you're looking to be best friends again. Doesn't mean you're looking to go back 30 years to what you had. What it means is you're trying to build a bridge between you and them. You don't have to worry about how you're going to drive on that bridge or how many times you're You're worried about building a bridge. Taking the first step. And you see, it's in that obedience It's in that willingness to die to self and say, I am in the reconciliation business. I am about putting broken relationships back together again. When you make that step, that's where the power of God begins to fall. On you and on them. But it's not easy. Joseph knew it wasn't easy, but he was willing to make the first step. He was willing to follow through with a plan. You see, you can't live it, you can't example it, you can't share it until you've practiced it. And you can't practice it until you experience it. This morning's a new opportunity. The mission fields are still white for harvest. Your home, your neighborhood, your community, your workplace. You may have a secular job, but you've been given a spiritual business. I like what Lucy said to Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown Peanuts comic strip. They're playing baseball. Luce drops the game-winning catch. Would have ended the game, but instead she dropped it. The other team wins. After the game, she's explaining to Charlie Brown why she dropped the ball. She said, Charlie, I, I knew I could catch it. I saw it coming. I knew I, I could grab it. I knew I could, could bring it into my glove. But the moment it was beginning to fall, I remembered all of those other times I dropped the ball. And my past got in my eyes and I dropped it. Don't let your past get in your eyes this morning. Don't let past efforts that failed stop you from trying again. Don't let the hurt and the anger keep you from being about your dad's business. Reconciliation is important. Restoring that which was broken. Let's pray.